Greetings from stormy Mozambique. I'm sitting in an office uh, in Maputo right now where uh, Casilda and I have come for her daughter's wedding, which will be taking place in a couple of days. A big old African wedding with hundreds of people and two different bands and a DJ, and uh, it goes on for days. It's going to be quite an event, I'm sure. Um, In any case, I'm going to try to release uh, podcasts every week for a while because I've got a backlog and I'm starting to feel very guilty about all these fascinating, interesting, busy people who made time for me months ago. And uh, they're still waiting for their podcast to come out. Some of them probably don't even remember, but uh, others are uh, sending me emails saying, hey, man, when's that uh, podcast going to come out that we recorded back when I was young and life was simple and innocent? Uh, Anyway, so I'm going to try to, um, while I'm not working on this book, since I'm traveling, I'm going to try to uh, get a, a podcast out every week for a while, maybe till the end of the year or so, and then I'll go back to my twice-monthly rhythm. Uh, depending, if I keep recording as many of them as I have been, I'll I'll try to keep releasing them every week just uh, to keep the, the flow going. Uh, I really enjoy doing this. It's It's wonderful to have an excuse to sit down with these folks. So I thought uh, this time we'd take a break from the uh, the sort of ostensibly uh, sexual content to Dan Savage and Marissa and, and uh, move into literature. I was very uh, lucky to have a chance to sit down with uh, the Irish author Frank Delaney uh, when I was in New York not too long ago. He's written a bunch of bestsellers, uh, Ireland, and most of them are based in, in Irish history. Some are nautical um, some are fiction, some are nonfiction. I think primarily uh, he's written fiction. Uh, we talk quite a bit about it in the podcast. He's a, a scholar. He's a, a TV personality. He had a talk show on the BBC for years in which he interviewed uh, all sorts of fascinating people. Sort of a dream job, sort of job I'd love to have, just uh, hanging out on a TV set interviewing fascinating people about their work and their lives. Anyway, Frank is uh, fantastic, you'll hear. He's a great storyteller, uh, got a great voice, lots of character, and he's he's been there. My only regret about this podcast is that uh, we, we found so much to talk about uh, in, uh, with our shared love of, of literature that we never really got very much into his years as a journalist covering uh, Northern Ireland. This is some of you who um, are 30 or younger probably don't remember, but uh, Northern Ireland was a place where bombs were going off pretty regularly. There was a lot of violence, a lot of extreme anger and tragedy happening in Belfast and, and the other 
parts of Northern Ireland. And Frank was there covering it for the BBC and uh, uh, saw quite a lot of um, unforgettable things, um, some of which he probably wishes he could forget. Um, but in any case, we, we didn't really get into his life experience that much because we spent so much time talking about books. So uh, this podcast will be especially interesting for you if you are a lover of literature, as I am, and, uh, and you want to hear someone extremely knowledgeable talking about um, literature, particularly Irish literature and uh, particularly James Joyce. Um, Frank Delaney is, as you'll hear, a, a real scholar of uh, James Joyce. So even if you're, if you're not a lover of James Joyce, listen to this podcast and you'll come away knowing quite a bit about uh, why everybody else is so excited about his work. Uh, okay, I don't have my notes, my, my normal podcast notes. So just from memory, of course... Sure Design T-shirts, the great Sure Design T-shirts, as always, wonderful sponsor. Um, I think I mentioned in the last episode we got in a new shipment of shirts recently uh, with the new tangentially speaking design on them. We've got uh, hoodies, unisex hoodies, and we've got women's shirts, men's T-shirts. Uh, they look great. It's a beautiful color, beautiful material, great design, very funky, very cool. Uh, we're very happy with them. So we've got them for sale on the chrisryanphd.com site, the same store where we have the tangentially, I mean the uh, Sex of Dawn t-shirts, and we got a new shipment in of those as well. So we're all stocked up, all sizes, ready to roll. Mom will send you a shirt, just place an order, and you're good to go. And what else? Um, uh, sfbags.com. Uh, check them out. I talked a lot about them last week. Uh, unfortunately, my backpack... I, I ordered it. They shipped it out like within hours, but because of Thanksgiving, it came the day after. It came a few hours after we got on our flight to Africa. So I don't have it with me, but I still have uh, some of their other products here with me. I've got a sleeve from my laptop from them, which is fantastic. I had one of their shoulder bags that I gave to my brother-in-law a few years ago now. Because um, I love their products, but the I find it difficult to carry anything with any weight on one shoulder because I start getting back pains and stuff. I prefer a, a backpack, a double double strap kind of situation. Balance, my friends, it's all about the balance. But anyway, I gave the shoulder uh, bag to my brother-in-law a few years ago. He uses it every day for work. He loves it, and it looks like the day I bought it. It is unchanged. Their their quality of their materials and workmanship is really quite quite amazing. Anyway, check them out, sfbags.com. Uh, I don't know if they're even sponsoring the podcast at this point. I think they are, I, but yeah, I don't know. Who gives a shit? Their stuff's great. You know, whether they're paying me to say it or not, it's true. Uh, yeah, what else? You know, as always, you can donate through, uh, tangentially speaking, the, the, the tab on my site, chrisryanphd.com. Check it out. You can see some stuff there, you know, whatever on the homepage. Some, I load some stuff, uh, you know, whatever's happening. Recent interviews I've done. I've done a bunch of TV interviews recently. Um, I just, about a week, two weeks ago, I flew to New York and did a three-and-a-half-hour TV interview for uh, an upcoming documentary on the History Channel about the Bible, of all things. Something I don't know much about, but 
They flew me to New York, and uh, I had some people to see in New York, so what the hell, I did it. Uh, and it was fun. They, they were cool. So we'll see how that turns out. Um, what else? Yeah, so podcast uh, donations. There's a donate button. You can also click through on the Bonobos Balls, and it'll take you through to Amazon.com, and we'll get a percentage of whatever you spend there, which is really cool. doesn't cost you anything extra, but just sends a little diverts a little bit of that income stream toward us here at the podcast we've got the t-shirts uh shore design t-shirts check them out they're great they've got a whole bunch of designs on their site and they make uh shirts for us we've got the tangentially speaking shirts and hoodies and the sex of dawn shirts and hoodies i don't know if i've already said that or not if i'm repeating myself it's because Somebody came to the door, um, actually a guy with a machine gun came to the door, which made me a little nervous, and I forgot to turn on the record button again when he left. He just wanted a key. I'm, I think I mentioned, well, before I get off on that tangent, <laughs> so uh, anyway, so then I continued with the intro and now I just uh, loaded it all up into GarageBand to produce it, and I found that uh, there was only half there. The other half, I had forgotten to push the button again when the guy with the machine gun left. So uh, I don't remember what I've said, what I haven't said. So please forgive me if I'm repeating myself. Uh, now, you might say, well, why did a guy with a machine gun come to the door? It's because I'm staying at the house of the parents of the guy my wife's daughter is marrying. Which makes them what? My uh, soon-to-be step-somethings-in-law. Uh, I'm not sure what, what they would be. Um, but in any case, uh, they're very, very nice people. And he's a member of parliament, and she works in the government. I think she's the vice minister of the interior of Mozambique. Uh, so they live in this beautiful house in Maputo, and there are armed guards around because they're in the government, I guess. So uh, they needed a key or something, and so uh, one of the, the guys with the guns was knocking at the door. So that's what happens when you're staying at uh, you know, government officials' house in, in Mozambique. Uh, what else was I talking about? I think I mentioned the, the, the sponsors, the, go to the website, donate, yada, yada, yada. I, man, there's so many things I forget. I don't have my notes. Uh, I'm sort of doing this on the fly. So pardon the, the sloppiness of this. Um, all right. I've spoken about Frank Delaney. I've spoken about, oh, I remember I talked a lot about Duncan Trussell and how funny he is and how great he is and some of the stuff that we're going to be doing. Uh, I think we're going to go, I think we're going to do a road trip to San Francisco when I get back to LA uh, because Duncan wants to meet Stanley Krippner. So I've offered to cruise up to San Francisco with Duncan. We're going to hang with Stanley. They'll do a, a podcast together, which will be wonderful. And maybe Duncan and I will do a road trip podcast on the way up. That's always uh, a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, that's something to look forward to. And uh, I think we're also going to do a group podcast with Rogan when we get back. Me, Duncan, and Joe in the studio, in Rogan's studio. So that'll be a great time. I always enjoy hanging out with those guys. I was, if you missed it, I was on Rogan last week. Um, 
assuming you're listening to this podcast uh, when it comes out. If not, just, you know, calculate based on <laughs> whatever <laughs> you figure it out. I don't, I don't know when you're listening to the podcast. Why are you asking me? Uh, hey, you know, I love the comments that I get. I love the, you know, the the calls uh, out on Twitter and the comments in iTunes and the emails I get. I thank you all for all of that. It's very generous, very kind that you're taking time out of your busy life to to uh, drop me a line. I really appreciate it. Um, and I think that's probably about it. I've mentioned the podcast. I've mentioned the sponsors. I feel like I'm forgetting stuff, but yeah, the hell with it. Uh, Frank Delaney is amazing. I hope you enjoy this conversation with him as much as I did. I hope to do a follow-up where we talk more about his life, uh, because as you'll hear, this one is pretty much all about the books. Uh, not even his books. <laughs> That's the thing. We're talking about other people's books, just because we got into this you know, shared love of literature. And uh, so I, ho- I hope to do another podcast with him where we talk about his work and uh, his life as a TV correspondent, a BBC guy. Uh, fascinating, fascinating mer- person. Okay, enjoy the podcast, uh, and I'll catch you probably next week. Ciao. We were born before the wind. Younger than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic I'm here with Frank Delaney. Uh, how do you describe yourself? Author, uh, BBC personality, journalist? You're, you're, so, you're a man of many hats. There's a kind of blanket description that one uses that kind of gets you through everything which is writer and broadcaster. Ah. And um, because if you say author, you confine yourself immediately. If you say broadcaster, you're heading for entertainment tonight. So I'm trying to keep respectability while at the same time exploiting <laughs> every single possible <laughs> commercial outlet there is in the world. Good luck. Good luck with that. Keep respectability? Absolutely. So you, you consider yeah. that if you have it at this in point? in the first place. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, and you're a podcaster as well. Podcaster. I do a weekly podcast on my own website, which deconstructs um, James Joyce's novel Ulysses ah. line by line because the problem people have had with Ulysses is that though they want to read it, they are daunted by the deliberate obfuscation Joyce put in. Joyce wanted people to keep reading, analyzing, and dissecting his novel, and he said that he had put in so many references and not so much laid false trails, but made people work so hard that it would keep the professors busy for 300 years. And a lot of people have been denied the huge pleasure that is Ulysses um, by not understanding the references. So I set out some years ago, three years ago, a little over three years ago, to open out every single reference in the book, whether it's theological, historical, literary, musical, sociological, whatever. Historical in terms of Dublin culture, historical in terms of Dublin street culture, social history. And to my astonishment, we are heading for just, we are now at the moment just under one million downloads. 
Wow. Yes. Congratulations. So there was an appetite. And where where are most of the downloads? Is all it, over the world. All over the yeah. I was going to say that's a very. I get emails from China. I get emails from Australia. I get emails from Canada. I get emails from Ireland, and um, and it means that there was Chris an appetite surrounding this book because people felt that here was this great work of literature to which they were denied access. What fired me up about that was I was fired up by two things. One, my own enormous enjoyment of the book which I had attacked for, you know, generations. And number two, um, Joyce was above all else a Democrat, small-d Democrat. And I have a passionate belief in the democratization of art and culture. It's something I learned at the BBC. We called it smuggling, where you took the biggest ideas in the world that were ever presented to the world by anybody, whether it was Emerson or Darwin or Nietzsche or Karl Marx, and you made them absolutely accessible. <laughs> which is exactly the opposite of what Joyce was doing. Exactly. And T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and the rest of... And yet Joyce said there's nobody in any of my books worth more than 100 bucks. Huh. He says, my people, he said, so, uh, hundred another layer yeah. of the cathedral clothes, he said, they're, pat- they're waiters, they're porters, they're fruit sellers, they're tailors, they're ordinary, everyday people. Then why was he writing in a way that ordinary people wouldn't be able to understand? He wanted them preserved and he believed that in time, scholarship would bring them to ordinary people, would bring ordinary people to Ulysses and bring his ordinary people to readers. I didn't know that when Mm. I started this process. I've only discovered that recently. It kind of reaches you the way a face materializes out of a lake in an old myth. Certain beliefs about Joyce begin to surface the more you work on him. And one of the beliefs that has come to me that I have seen and have now been able to prove through the documentation that exists about him is that he intended to be revealed slowly. Hmm. And that came later in his career because Dubliners, for example, is very quite accessible. accessible. Oh, yeah. accessible. And so is Portrait of the Artist. I mean, yeah. Portrait of the Artist may be in many ways high-flown and it has all the wonderful pretensions of a young man. He's 22. What people didn't understand or didn't generally grasp about him in terms of the knowledge of Joyce was that in terms of the literary time involved, uh, Ulysses begins three months after A Portrait of the Artist ends. Portrait of the Artist ends in March 1904 with Stephen Dedalus, the young student, the young literary man about town in Dublin, uh, setting forth into the world, taking his only, as his only weapons, silence, exile and cunning. But three That's years, right. three, three, three months later... He's walking along with Sandy Mount Strand in the, in the early chapters of Ulysses. And it is the same Stephen. He is in the same depressed state. He is in the same uh, intellectually questing state. He is the same young man. So what you're looking at with Joyce is you're looking at an absolute continuum, which is the life that has lived transcribed to the page. And how much time had passed between the writing of uh, Portrait of the Artist and the, when he started writing Ulysses? He started writing Ulysses first. Really? Not generally known. Ulysses began life as a short story that he might include in Dubliners. Uh-huh. And he suspended it. It wasn't finishing itself. It wasn't working. It was about a story about a man being knocked down in a fight, which happened to him, being rescued by a kind Jewish gentleman, which happens at the end of Ulysses. So in actual fact, there was a genesis of Ulysses going on while he was working on Dubliners. And Dubliners, again, what fascinates me about Joyce is that everything about him is a progression. Dubliners is a progression. It starts with a small boy um, going to a house where an old priest has died. So you have this beginning of life with death. And 
as, a, as you go through the stories, you are meeting adults in various degrees of maturity, and you end up with a story called The Dead. And Stephen then is progressing through a childhood, where he hears the moo-cow moo coming down the road, to an adolescence, to a young adulthood, where he's desperately trying to find himself and hoping to fly the nets of Catholicism, of patriotism, of nationalism. Of Ireland. Of Ireland. And then you move into Ulysses, which essentially is pinned on the framework of Homer's Odyssey, which is the great classical construct of how man actually is and how man faces all these various challenges on the islands of challenge all around the world. And then, and then at the end of his journey, returns home. Absolutely. Yeah. To, to, to the woman lying in the bed with whom he sleeps upside down as a contraceptive device. <laughs> <laughs> so is that the, the classic image of 69? Is Absolutely. that gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. But that's, you know, the, 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 whole, I didn't know that. the whole democracy of that. Yeah. The democracy of his own art appeals to me enormously, and to have the opportunity and the privilege of explaining it to people. And the style of the podcasts is almost aggressively democratic. The language that I use is very simple. Mm, if there's yeah. a word that he uses that is unusual, I will give the full etymology of that word, where it came from, if it came from Norwegian, if it came from Old High Norse, whatever. How do you know? Give... How do you know all this? I mean, I know you've been reading it for years, but there, there must be lines that stump you as well, no? Sometimes there are, and there, there, are, there have been one or two attempts to do annotations to Ulysses, but there are leaps, there, there are gaps in them, and my, part of my job also is to fill in those gaps. And in some of the annotations, there are errors, and part of my job is to correct those errors. And sometimes you come across something. The great example is when I know things that come out of the sound of the way Irish people speak. Uh, I'll give you a particular right. example. Very early on in Ulysses, in the opening chapter, in fact, Buck Mulligan, who was based on a Dublin doctor who was a medical student when Joyce was a literary student in Dublin, a man called Oliver Gogarty, they talk about um, a practice of hazing in an Oxford college where somebody is debagged, which means he has his pants taken off, and he's rushing around the place. This boy, this rather timid boy, hates being hazed, and he's rushing around the place in a kind of sheepish and agitated way. And the word, a word comes in, the word AIDS, A-D-E-S, and they refer to this boy as having to go to AIDS. All of the references so far, anybody who has approached this, the best they've done is reference obscure. Hmm. Well, it isn't obscure if you come from Dublin or if you're accustomed to Irish pronunciation. The tailor in Oxford, this is described in an, Ox in an Oxford college, this hazing, they've heard about it and they're talking to one another about it. The tailors in Oxford who make the gowns for the colleges who are still there and were there in Joyce's time, although Joyce didn't go to Oxford, are a company called Ede and Ravenscroft, E-D-E and Ravenscroft. In Ireland, that E-D-E would be pronounced Aid. <laughs> so he has to go to the tailor. To the tailor. Yeah. yeah. And they refer to the tailor's shears. That's the kind of thing I'm coming up with. Yeah. Um, I, for example, I gave a list at some stage. Every, every 13th, every baker's dozen, I do a separate essay on, on some aspect of Joyce. One of them was a reading list of what we've had so far in which I identify all the theologians that he has described. And I grew up 
in an intensely Catholic background. I have a brother who's a Catholic priest. Oh. And I was an altar boy for nine years. So I, I was steeped in not only the rubric, but the entire culture of the Catholic Church, as was Joyce, who was a Jesuit boy. I wasn't. Mm. I was a Christian brother's boy. I still have the bruises. And um, he, so therefore, I, when he is making a theological reference, it's ten chances to one that I will know it. Right. Because I refer to it in my own life. Mm. For example, somewhere in, I think it's chapter three in Proteus, uh, Stephen is remembering um, a devotion, a devotional service, an evening devotional service in a church in Dublin. And I knew the entire service by heart because I had attended it so often myself as a child in a country church in Ireland. So it must be almost autobiographical for you to, it's to be going through. It's a sheer delight. Yeah. It is one of the nicest things. That is, it's the nicest thing that has ever happened to me intellectually. It's one of the nicest things that has ever happened to me emotionally in my life because it is so exciting. Yeah. It is a thrill every time I sit down to write a podcast. I do them in bunches of a month at a time. You write them out? I write them out. Ah, I do now. Yeah. I started not doing that. Yeah. I started just by reading the text and delivering them all. And then I found I could do a much, much better job if I wrote them out. And then I could pursue words. I could pursue etymologies of words. I could find out where, where he got certain words right. from. Right. Uh, he uses, in the chapter I'm working at the moment, he uses the term dribs and drabs. Well, that refers actually to... The dullness of stale porter, I think, is what it was. What really? Kind of thing, yeah. And he's talking about <laughs> cheating barmen who cheat by collecting all the dregs and turning it into a fresh pint. Ah, uh, <laughs> nice. Kind of the old man. And, and therefore, you know, the excitement and the satisfaction I get from it in, in emotional terms and in intellectual terms is unparalleled. And for me, <laughs> and I've only realized this quite recently, it is the perfect meeting of the emotion of the emotions and the intellect. And the intellect. And they're totally fused. I was, and as you were talking, I was thinking, you must get, a, you're, you're a born teacher. You know, you're... you're I guess so. Yeah. I, you know, but you're I probably... A teachers. Right, and you'd probably, you know, chafe at some of the restrictions of teaching you oh, know, yes. every Tuesday oh, and Thursday God, yes. and, you know, these lazy kids and whatever. But in a way, this sort of gives you the perfect opportunity to teach, and yet you're alone. So you're, right. you're sitting in yeah, a room where, right. as a writer, yeah. you're comfortable sitting yeah. in a room alone. We know that there are thousands of people downloading this every Right. You've thousands got your audience, and they're interested. Them. And I meet them. Uh, out on I the road? You run into somewhere. Them? We were in Rochester, New York. Um, Diane and I were in Rochester, New York earlier this year. I was giving a talk. And afterwards, some men, some businessmen, came to meet me. And they were part of a group that listens to these podcasts. Oh, right. We know of libraries who meet where there's a reading group, meet once a month with the text in front of them, and they listen to four, four podcasts and go through it. I know of people who sit at their desks every Wednesday with lunch, and they listen to the podcast, and they have their copy of Ulysses in the desk drawer, and they listen to it that way. And that's a joy. But I'm enormously interested in the development it has given me, the psychological development it has given me, in that it does something that is a kind of perfection for me, which is the fusing, as I say, of the emotional, the emotions and the intellect. But... That is, actually, that is actually the model for what writing should be, for what all art should be. All art should be the fusion of the emotions and the intellect. Mm. That is why I have become so hostile to organized religion, because they keep them apart. Good point. Yeah. Whereas this, what I'm doing, brings the emotions to bear on the intellect and brings the intellect to bear on the emotions, gives them that satisfaction. In an organized religion, somebody takes charge of all that. Or yeah. takes charge of the junction where those two pipes are supposed to meet. Yeah. 
you know, I was thinking you're talking about the fu- fusion of intellect and emotion. Just yesterday, I was reading someone. I wish I could remember who it was, a, a quite well-known author who said that over his desk for 30 years, he's had a sign that said, don't think. Because he, I understand that completely. His feeling was it's all about the emotion. Feel, get it down what you feel, think later. Horatio's last lines in Hamlet. Good night, sweet prince, and flights of anal angels sing thee to thy rest. You'd kill for that line. Yeah. It's generally believed that Shakespeare actually scribbled that line by the side of the stage on the first night. But the play <laughs> wasn't finished. Now, if you think about yeah. it, if you take that thought and pursue it, geometrically, so to speak, produce it, as one would do in geometry with a line or an angle. Um, if you think about that, he was, what, in his early 50s, uh, 15, 64 to 1664. He was 52 when he died, right? How could he have written, what is it, 37 plays and a slew of poems and thought about every line he wrote? He can't have done. So it must have been unconscious. The sheer output of Joyce, so much of it must have been unconscious. It's why I'm so interested in Jung rather than in Freud. I'm with you there. Jung's yeah. point was that the, un, that the conscious mind is a tiny island floating in the vast sea yeah. of the unconscious. Yeah. So therefore, Joyce and Shakespeare and Bach, and that's my top, tri- my top trio, yeah. they must have been doing this, not so much automatically, but they must have had such an open channel from yeah. the unconscious to the conscious. There's a lovely remark that uh, Mozart made and William Blake. Ah, uh, William Blake. Door. Mind forged manacles. Oh, yes. Wonderful. And Joyce said the same, basically the same thing. This, Mozart said that there were times when he sat down to write and he felt the music enter the crown of his head, flow down through his cranium into his neck, down across his shoulder, right shoulder, and down along his arm and through his fingers and onto the, through his pen onto the page. Both Blake and Joyce, who may or may not have known of Mozart's remark, um, made the same remark. And that's the only way that I can conceive of these men having done the work they did, because the volume is so great. Look at Picasso. Picasso couldn't have thought, unlike poor Matisse, mm. who thought about every daub of paint, Picasso couldn't have thought about everything he put on the canvas. De Kooning, for example, mm. changed, changed his nature several times in the beginning and was always in huge output. What he thought about was the alteration in his psyche, not about what it produced. Yeah, yeah. I think the thought is the is the the monkey riding the horse. Absolutely. Don't try to control Absolutely. it. Let it run. Don't think. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. You can come back and collect it and correct it afterwards. Yeah. And and and, and as a actually, writer, I yeah. use the word yeah. collect it. Collect quite Freudian slip, but it's yeah. it's appropriate. You gather it up. You, you, and you yeah, rearrange it. Yeah, yeah. And you, and you throw away the shit. <laughs> I, absolutely. You take up all the fillers. That's the hard part. I call it, I call it ironing. Uh, yeah. You Debugging. Take, yeah, you, yeah. You iron it. You take out all the wrinkles. Yeah. And you get it. And then all you can do, and this is especially important, I think, in this world where publishing itself is changing so fast, all you can do is the best you are at that particular moment. Mm. But that's where the effort is. The effort is to impress yourself. Not mm-hmm. to impress anybody else. Yeah. And Joyce was only interested in impressing himself. So for me, he's also a great teacher. I've learned so much about writing from him. He had multiple forms of narration. He didn't just have the stream of consciousness. He didn't just have the third-party, uh, um, omnipotent, omniscient narrator's prose. 
He had halfway houses. He had all kinds of things. He had the unspoken thought that comes up as one word in the middle of a sentence, and then five sentences on, you see the thought surfacing. I learned so much from him. Did he know Freud or Jung? Because he was around the same time, right? The Austrian Tweedledum and the Swiss Tweedledee. (laughs) That's what he called them, really? (laughs) Jung wrote to him and said that the the famous Molly Bloom soliloquy at the end, the phrase is, Jung said, it is a veritable string of psychological peaches. (laughs) And he wanted to to, um, analyze Joyce. And Jung. Jung did. Jung had this theory that the Irish were probably either the best candidates for analysis or they were unanalyzable. And he right. wanted to use Joyce as a kind of guinea pig. Joyce, on the other hand, had a daughter who was probably has, we have to be careful about using the term schizophrenic because it's so often misused. Yeah. But she, she exhibited very early on traces of what people in shorthand called schizophrenia literally turned out to be technically accurate. Joyce flirted with Young for a while in the hope that Young could cure Lucia, who was incurable, in fact. But there was no way he was going to sit on the couch and be analysed. And he probably wasn't capable of being analysed in the sense that it would, even though Young had a huge mind, it would have taken a much bigger mind and spirit to cope with the sheer output of Joyce, which was gigantic. My favourite story about Jung, uh, and I don't remember if this is in Memories, Dreams and Reflections or someone somewhere else, but he was in Africa. Uh, I think he was in his 50s. He was in Africa travelling with a colleague. Uh, I imagine them with monocles and three-piece suits, you know. Always beautifully dressed. Bearers, you know, bringing all their stuff. They were in Congo, or I I think they were in the Belgian Congo. I'm I'm not sure about that either. But in any case, they were back in the jungle somewhere, and uh, there was a festival going on, and the native people were dancing around the fire, and it was getting wilder and wilder, and the two of them were there taking notes. And is this ringing a bell? Yeah. Yeah. And... uh, the the mood started to change and the people started dancing around them rather than around the fire and making threatening gestures with their spears. And the, the Jung's colleagues said, I, I think we're going to die here. There, you know, there's no, what are we going to do? And Jung put down his notebook and got up and started dancing. And everyone laughed oh, and it diffused the situation. Yeah. But he learned so much in Africa. <clears throat> Wasn't it in Africa that he found the tribe whose task it was to make the sun rise every morning? That rings a bell, yeah. yeah. Imagine giving yourself that task, to make the sun rise every (laughs) morning, which is what writing is, by the way. Yeah, well, (laughs) my sun hasn't risen for a while. It's been a long night. You have to make the sun rise every morning, (laughs) whether you like it or not. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, Young is enormously enormously interesting. Yeah. He's... um, And a great artist, a visual uh, artist. You've seen his red book. Absolutely. I'm delighted to have a copy of it. It's It's one of my possessions. Diane gave it to me for Christmas a few years ago. And what I like about him more than anything else is... His acknowledgement that we are two things. One, we are in a continuum. And number two, we are in a universe mm. where everything is connected. The past is connected to the present. The present is connected to the future. We are all connected to one another. Mm. And it goes on all the time. And everything, everything you experience goes into your unconscious mind. I find, I don't know if you find this, but I find that, that writing stuff, especially fiction, 
something will surface. Because when I'm writing a draft, I write very, very fast, and I write a lot, and then I come back and I collect it and tidy it up and so on and so forth. But I'd come back the following day to just do the first pass over the, first, the previous day's work, and I'll see stuff in there, and i say, where in the name of God did that come from? Mm. And I'd say, that was such and such. I'd give you, ter- give you a terrifically interesting example of this. The first long novel I wrote, was, which is Juvenilia, it was a part of a family saga commissioned by a publisher, and I needed the money badly at the time. And, um, <laughs> well, when doesn't one? Um, and I wrote in it a wedding scene about a young couple in Dublin, uh, and it was fixed at a time and date in 1925 because that was the chronology of the book. I'm always very careful. To, the, one of the first things I do with the book is I do its calendar. Oh. Set out its actual calendar. I've had you know calendars here on my desk for November 1872 at the moment because that's where I'm living right now. How many novels have you published? I think it's... 14. I'm not sure. I think it's 14. I love, I, I love people who can't remember how many books they've oh, I don't written. want to know about them. <laughs> <laughs> I only wrote them. I never read them. <laughs> so in this, I describe this wedding scene, uh-huh. this, wedding, this wedding day and an event that happens on the wedding day. And about three years after the book was published, the BBC in Northern Ireland contacted me, and the BBC in London contacted me. They were doing a program about Irish writers, and they'd asked me, would I appear in the program, and would I read something I'd written? And they selected this particular piece. I thought, oh, Christ, if they're going to ask me to read that, I better go back and check the facts, because I just made it up. So I went back to the church. I went to Dublin. I went to the church involved where I had located it. And I asked, I found the sacristan. I said, how far back does the parish register go here? Oh, he said, it goes right back to the university church. You could only get married there if you were a graduate of the university. So I said, could we look at it for the 20... Something of June 1926, whatever it was. I said, sure. And there I found my parents' wedding. And you just... I never knew. Pulled a date I out. called one of my family and said, do you know the date our parents got married? He said, it was sometime in the 1920s. He said, if you think of the age of our older sister, it was in the 1920s. <laughs> so I pulled a date. Now, here's the point. The young would love that. I got that, absolutely. Yeah. I got that unconsciously. Yeah. I did not, I swear to you, have that conscious knowledge. Yeah. So collective unconscious or or family unconscious? Family unconscious or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever. There was a thing I used to do at the BBC. Um, Sometimes I did staff training lectures, and I would get these wonderfully clever young producers and young broadcasters who just come down from Oxford or Cambridge with a double first or something like that. Marvellous minds. And um, as an example of where you may allow your emotions to create an editorial impact in a news report. I paid them a very famous piece of broadcasting, which is Richard Dimbleby, a, a, a colleague of Ed Morrow's, a BBC colleague of Ed Morrow, who was a CBS, from, uh, from Belson. And he was the first English-language reporter to go into Belson, and he broadcast on the BBC. And he started with the bell of the camp tolling behind him, and he described... Uh, what he saw. It's a minute and ten seconds of news. Now, in the BBC, you're not allowed to editorialize as a reporter. You'll be fired. You just cannot say, I think. You you deliver the facts. Everything is contained in the first sentence. Everything after that is embellishment. Mm. Today, you know, the Americans dropped a bomb on Nagasaki, a nuclear bomb on Nagasaki, so and then everything else is embellishment. That's the fact. Uh, Dimbleby describes this, what he saw, 
And then he says at the very end, and he got into a lot of trouble for this, the last sentence of the report as the bell is ringing is, this has been the most terrible day of my life. So I would play this as an example to get the debate going about when may you editorialize? When may you allow emotion into a news report? It's a very tricky question, especially with all these shout shows on Capable now where everybody's shouting all the time and where opinion is used as news. And the number of times I said to these people, mostly not born in 1945, most of them born in the 50s and 60s and some in the 70s, said to them, have you ever heard this before? None of them consciously knew it or were aware of it. And I thought Jung would love that. Mm. So what he knew, what Jung knew that was of great use to me in my life was the difference between knowledge and awareness. Mm. That's beautifully put. And that's the wonderful thing about him. And, and so therefore the twinning of Joyce and Jung is just perfect. I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry that he didn't analyze Joyce. It would have been Joyce going to Freud wouldn't have been nearly as interesting. Yeah, no. Joyce going to Jung would have been. Fast. Freud would have tried to reduce him, and he would. Yeah, yeah he was a yeah. reductionist, and yeah. and that was the only way Freud could cope with things was to reduce things so they fitted into his models. Which is why Freud and, and Jung couldn't continue their friendship. Of and course. It, which yeah. is why yeah. I think Freud got cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, because he was trying to force what he believed. He was trying to force the shape. He tried to force too many shapes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a great belief in, in that thing that Jung does about um, external science, the external evidence of things. I have a friend who should be nameless and who doesn't use the internet anyway, so he won't hear this. And he was a man who, seemingly in a very respectable profession, he was a, um, a kind of philosophical and legal advisor to a very powerful investment bank, very Tony private investment bank. But away from work, he lived the life of an irresponsible rake. He, you know, he pursued girls who were 15 and so on and so forth, underage girls, or 16, barely overage in England. And slowly, for no reason, for no reason, this is a man I used to talk to about his own psyche over and over again. We'd lunch a lot. And I'd say, listen, you have to look at your life. Slowly, surely, he began to go blind. So I said, you're going blind because you're not looking at yourself. And he said to me, I don't know what you mean. I was having dinner in my club in London one night with a friend of mine who had come in from Austria, who was an Englishman working in Austria, and he had been he, he was a psychologist. And I said, come to dinner. So I invited Stephen along, and uh, we talked. Now, Stephen didn't lose his sight. I'm changing the name. Stephen didn't lose his sight because he went to work with this guy who got him a really good psychotherapist in London, who did begin to look at his life. He began to change his behavior, and the external signs of him not looking at himself began to wane. There was no clinical reason why he was going blind. They could not find a clinical reason. It wasn't dietary. It wasn't organic. There was nothing about him that was producing this blindness. There was no glaucoma. There was no iritis. There was nothing like that. He just started to go blind. I had an uncle who suffered a lot of verbal abuse from his parents and siblings. He was a most beautiful singer. He went deaf for no known reason. Yeah. Have you heard of Bruce Chatwin? 
I knew Bruce very well. Really? I have a cache of about 40, 45 letters from Bruce. Really? Yes. Oh, well, uh, well. just yeah, that's that's great happenstance there. Why uh, are you interested in him? Well, because your story about the blindness reminded me uh, of a story I heard about him or I read in one of his books. Wasn't he, at a very young age, of an important curator of art for Sotheby's, I believe? And he started to lose his vision. Right, and he went to a series of, of physicians, and finally a, a neurologist or a psychiatrist who said to him, "I think this is due to the fact that you're under so much pressure. You're looking at things in such detail all the time. What you need to do is change your life." And I don't remember if that's when he went to Africa and he wrote the first book. The first book was called In, Pat- in Patagonia. Maybe it was in that because I loved that book. Oh, oh my god! Book. Book. Yeah, do you remember what it begins with. No, it's been 20 years since uh, I read this it. Is what some, this is why your point is so marvelous. And it's about his sight. It's so marvelous. The book begins with an image of an artifact in a cabinet in his grandparents' home, which is, oh, the, which yes. is the foot of a, of a three-toed sloth. <laughs> yes, I do remember that now. The, yeah. the three-toed sloth came from Latin America somewhere yeah, from hey. memory. And that's why he eventually went up in Patagonia. Yeah. Even more interesting, in some ways, is he was—he had Welsh blood in him, and of course, in, down at the tip of Latin America, in Patagonia, there is a Welsh-speaking community, and there has been for centuries. I knew Bruce very well. I did one of the last interviews he gave. He was on a television show. I had a television show, a late-night decavital-style show, in on the BBC. And the three people on that night were Mario Vargas Llosa, Bruce Chatwin, and Jorge Luis Borges. Holy cow. That was the show. I still have the tape of it somewhere. Unbelievable. It's on the BBC website. And um, I had known him. I'd interviewed him before that. We became very friendly. Mm -hmm. He was an amazingly beautiful man. Yeah. And I don't know whether he ever came out. Well, that was the thing. I, the rumor that I heard was that he died of AIDS, but he yeah. made up this thing about some fungal infection know, from Tibet or whatever it was. I had agonized letters from him discussing sexuality yeah. over and over again. I don't know why he attached himself to me in any way. I think it was because the first time I met him, I did um, a, a very sympathetic interview. What he asked me uh, more than anything else was not to tell anybody about the correspondence. Really? And I haven't, because he's dead now, I can say it, and I've never produced the letters, and I never will. He never wanted anybody to see them. But he asked me not to talk about it while it was going on. He asked me not to tell friends at dinner, or I had a letter from Bruce Chatwin the other day. Very interesting. And I now think that he had a network of people who were his correspondents. Interesting that he would pick someone like you, yeah. TV show, radio yeah, shows, you know, yeah. very public yeah. figure, yeah. and say, hey, don't, <laughs> by the way, don't, don't mention this to well, anyone. I think this is why, after the first interview I did with him, uh, I was walking down the corridor, and we stood talking, it was a pouring rain, we stood in the foyer of the BBC Broadcasting House in London at the top of Regent Street, we stood talking for ages, and he was looking around, he said, how do you do this job, he said, I said, it's an interesting question, I said, you have to be 50% extrovert and 50% introvert. He said, so you have an introverted side. I said, I have to have. I said, and probably over the years, I said, that will increase. I said, it's not that I have a persona. I do not have a performance persona. I said, what you see now is what you would see if you were in my home. 
and I right. were there alone, and you came in and had a drink with me or a cup of tea with me. Uh, that's what you would see. I said, but there is an introvert side that only I see. And he said, that's exactly what I do. Hmm. But he was a wonderfully interesting man. I'll bet. Uh, and there was a kind of, there was a kind of power in him that was fascinating. Diane has a, a friend, a school friend called David Black, who's a major um, intellectual figure in the investment world here in the United States. And David is an exceptionally clever man who's very technological, computer science, everything. And he advises one of the big, big investment companies. He works for them. And David sometimes comes into lunch here. And sitting beside him is when his brain starts to work, you ask him a question, and I apply him with questions. Because if you're a teacher, you're always learning. Yeah. And you hear this brain, Chris, it's like being beside a Boeing engine that's starting <laughs> up. You know? Bruce is like that. It's like an really? engine, goddamn bloody Boeing engine. Wow. You hear it starting to wear, and then it gathers force uh. and strength. And then out come these wonderful answers. And it's so stimulating. Bruce Chatterman was like that. Borges was like that. Oh, yeah. Bork, I said to Borges, what are you working on at the moment? He said, I'm working a story, he said, about a man who woke up one morning to find that he had inherited Shakespeare's memory. Borges was Colombian? Argentinian. Argentinian. And Maria Vargas Llosa? No, I think he might have been uh, Peruvian. I wonder if he was born in Colombia, but he was certainly Argentinian, because he talked about B.A. all the time. Uh, And they both spoke, I know. Absolutely. He also spoke English. And and he was, somebody wrote in the Times of London afterwards, Peter Aykroyd wrote, uh, that watching the interview was like watching somebody interview Homer. Yeah. Because he was a little blind man and he had his big walking (laughs) stick, you know. And I went around London with him and I had to describe buildings to him that he had read about over the years. He wanted to see the Bank of England, you know. He wanted to drive past Selfridge's department store. And I had to describe these things to him and tell him what they were like. And it was just absolutely fascinating. But Chatwin was... I would make a a plea to say that Chatwin was probably the most interesting... Of the three of them. Were the three on together? On a, on a panel, yeah. And were they interacting with each other? With oh, each that other. must have just been just amazing. amazing. I mean, as an interviewer, you must have just wanted to back. sit back and let them go, yeah. And that's what you do in those circumstances. Yeah. And the less you are in it, the more successful the program is, you know. Yeah. I just picked up off my desk here, quite spontaneously, because I brought them in to be scanned. Two photographs taken years ago. They're both the same photograph. Do you recognize that man? John Updike. John Updike. That's me interviewing him at the Edinburgh <laughs> Festival years and years ago. Wow, yeah. And that was an electric occasion. Packed audience, absolutely packed. And we're standing uh, in the corridor before going out. And he said to me, do you think there'll be many people here? I said, wait and see. No, he said, I need to know. I said, I think I said it's standing room only. He said, no, that's not possible. I said, oh, yes. And he said, I have that many supporters here I said oh I said we needed a bigger hall where were you in Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Edinburgh uh-huh. we needed a bigger hall and he said to me he said you know I don't like doing these things <laughs> and he came out and he was absolutely fabulous uh, did he have prepared fabulous. remarks or did he no, just wing an interview uh, wing. oh wing. And, but I had I knew I knew so much of the work yeah and we went from rabbit to a novel of his that I'm particularly interested in called couples which ends with the burning of a church. Uh, it's about an affair a builder has in a New England town called Tarbox with a local, very beautiful young wife who's heavily pregnant. And this affair is conducted in a house out on the sand dunes. Mm. Uh, clearly, it's the Massachusetts coast. And, um, and the whole thing, the entire novel ends with the church 
in the town catching fire. It's a wonderful piece of work. It's, it's not referred to that often. It's a wonderful piece of work. But I had wanted only to talk to him about that. I would have talked to him all night about that, all day. But we got into the rabbit books, and we got into his essays as well. Do you agree with people who... I mean, the, I'm sure you've heard this criticism of his work before. It's, I don't remember exactly, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially what it comes down to is it's too bad nothing serious ever happened to him, too bad he didn't live through a war, too, because he's such a great writer. He's, his use of language is so fantastic, but he always seems to be writing about suburban couples, you know, having problems, and mm. you know what I mean? It's like... I don't know. I, I, people make the same criticism of Mozart that it's beautiful but ultimately meaningless. Do you do you feel that about oh, his I, work? I, I couldn't disagree more. Really, he he made his own wars. Yeah, but there's suburban wars between bitter men and dissatisfied women, and I don't know. I mean, what about Kurt Vonnegut? Did you ever meet him? Yeah, I never I never met him sadly, but Slaughterhouse Five. I see what you, I unbelievable exactly what book. The comparison between Slaughterhouse Five and anything by Updike. But my point, the point, point I would make about Updike is that he was the most perfect proportionate writer America ever produced. Mm. You know, when you're in a domestic war, yeah, you might as well be going over the top <laughs> in World War I. <laughs> well, there is that. But the pain is so private and personal yeah. Yeah. and therefore inherently less interesting to me anyway, unless there's some universal uh, resonance. But didn't he set out to be the ultimate chronicler of people who in, as Emerson said, most people lead lives of quiet, quiet desperation. desperation. I think Thoreau, yeah. It was a Thoreau yeah, Emerson. Yeah, yeah, they they live together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way, because I'm always getting the two well, that makes Actually, you. I think Thoreau may have had an affair with Emerson's wife. There was some... Something like that. Some, yeah. All we need there is Robert Frost arriving late. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, you know the great line, my favorite Emerson Thoreau thing. Thoreau was always getting into trouble and, you know, civil disobedience was about uh, refusing to pay taxes because he didn't want his money to support slavery. And so he went to prison and Emerson came to bail him out. You know the story. And Emerson said to him, "Uh, uh, Henry, what are you doing in there? And Henry said, uh, Ralph, what are you doing out there? Yeah, yeah. 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 But, but, Stepped but, on that. But, but you see, that, that point, one of the things, this is the great service Bob Dyke has rendered. And it is an absolutely powerful service. And I believe it's what will immortalize him, has immortalized him. In this giant country, in this huge nation of now 300 million people, mm. what he understood is that there is no such thing as a giant nation of 300 people is one soul at a time. Yeah. And that's his great gift to us. He got it absolutely right. He understood that the greater the nation, the smaller the person. I mean, there's a wonderful poem by an Irish writer called Patrick Kavanagh who describes uh, visiting the site of a local faction fight where two families in the 19th century, fought over land with shillelaghs and clubs, and they'd meet at a narrow stream, and the stream was the boundary, and they'd beat the living daylights <laughs> out of each other. And he describes this particular one, and he describes the men who fought there. Yeah. And my father saw faction fights. My father was a boy, what is he, faction fights? They were kind of spectator sports. And 30 men from each side of each tribe, they were like the Hatfields and the McGoys. Yeah. And at the end of this short poem, Kavanagh makes the point that Homer built the Iliad 
from a local row such as this. And he ends up observing that gods make their own importance. Mm. The value of Updike. If, we re- if, if art is our greatest teacher, then Updike taught so many people that they were not alone. In their suffering. Yeah. Engstrom. Yeah. Engstrom is a major, major, major creation. Yeah. Engstrom is a Leopold Bloom creation. He's a major American creation. This is, uh, Updike is now in the 30-year dip that happens after people die. Yeah. But in about 25 years' time, when people come to a new appreciation of him, his giantism, his giganticism will be seen and perceived. Is he, it sounds like he's one of your favorite 20th century American authors. He is. He absolutely would be. I think Wolf is going to... Tom, both Wolves yeah. are going to be in the same category. Both Wolves, I should probably... <laughs> <laughs> Thomas and the Tom. Pack. Um, but Vonnegut and Slaughter Housewife. What I don't understand about Vonnegut and Slaughter Housewife and the thing I will never understand as long as I live is, A, how he lived through that experience, and B, yeah. how he wrote it. And With a sense of humor. The man is, well, it's probably the only way you can use it. The yeah. man is quite, quite extraordinary. Yeah. How you live through what happened yeah. in Slaughterhouse-Five, picking up the bodies in Berlin. and in how, Dresden. And, and Dresden. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then, and then, as, as a prisoner of war. Yeah. And then you come back and you actually write it. I covered Northern Ireland for four, three, four years. Troubles in Ireland, three, four years. Yeah. I haven't written about it at all. I doubt if I'll ever get to it. Because of the pain. Oh, absolutely. Because of the, the sheer fright. <laughs> I probably never get to it. I don't know. And maybe there will be no growth in me until I do. But I'm not sure. At the moment, I'm writing a novel about the horrific history of... Uh, and I don't have a contract. I'm writing this on spec. The horrific history of child abuse in the Catholic Church. And it's set in two centuries in the 19th century and in the 6th century. Parallel cases. Wow. Both, both set in Ireland? Both set in Ireland, in no. Irish schools, Irish monasteries. Wow. The point being that it's always been there. Yeah. And secondly, what, what, how does the second case learn from the first? Because there has never been, so far as I can see, I have never come across anybody who has produced an ideal way of managing it. Managing what? Managing the uncovering of child abuse. When you when when it transpires that a priest has been abusive to young people, what is the remedy? Well the remedy has to include it's not throwing money at it, just throwing money at it. The remedy has to include some kind of expiation, some kind of visible restitution to the abused person, some kind of acknowledgement, I did this to you, and therefore I am guilty, and here I am acknowledging it in the most humble way in which I can. And I've never seen that anywhere, and it's become, it is such a major issue. But when I was researching this book, I was reminded of stuff that I had found out some years ago when I was covering stories like this um, as a reporter, Um, But there are bishops and church dignitaries. Basil of Caesarea in AD 369 warned against this kind of turpitude in monasteries. It goes way back. It's always been there. And nobody's ever thought to extirpate it. It's always been there, right? The the uh, I don't I don't know the technical word for it, but the 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 demand, the instruction, the prohibition yeah. of uh, sexuality yeah. among priests is yeah. the earliest 
one of the earliest the church documents. Absolutely. So right from the beginning, the you've got this now, impossible you can situation. Say that once you have a monastery with priests, uh, with boys and teachers, you're going to have a hothouse straight away. And in any hothouse like that, things are going to overflow. Passions are going to be ignited. But that's not the point. The point is that they should... The, 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 the story... The sin is not the story. One man loving another man, or man loving a boy, that's not wrong. That was never wrong. What was wrong was the exploitation, where there's a power exchange, and secondly, the cover-up. And it was the cover-up by the church of these crimes that is the most appalling piece of murderous cynicism that we have ever seen. This is the most corrupt behavior of my lifetime. This is equal to my mind in everything except scale. This is equal to Nazism. And I wrote three novels about the Holocaust. And I wonder, <laughs> and I wonder about scale because you're talking about centuries. We don't know what the scale is. We really do not know what the scale is. The cover-up, and it's going on even as we speak, it's yeah. going on. Yeah. Even as we speak, they're still covering up. So there's, those are the things, you see, that, that a writer can get at. And Joyce didn't touch that. You see, Joyce didn't go through wars. I mean, he did. And he helped a lot of Jews escape the Nazis and stuff like that when he was in Zurich. But when you talk about Updike never having lived through a war, never having experienced that pain the way the Vonnegut did in Slaughterhouse-Five, um, I take your point. But that doesn't interfere with the art. Nabokov was interviewed here in the United States not long after uh, Lolita became a massive hit. And the interviewer said to him, what, what, is, what is the writer? What is, what is the writer? And he said, the writer has three things. He said, the writer is a storyteller, a teacher, a magician. And then, of course, Nabokov, being Nabokov, added, and the great writer, like me, is all three. <laughs> and humble. And humble. humble Poor thing. Well, that's what the Jesuits used to say. No, we're tops in humility. Oh, really? <laughs> no, the San Franciscans used to say that. The Jesuits called themselves the princes of the church. But, but so therefore, if, if you use any one of those three, any one of those three, you can tell any story you want, which is what Joyce did, which is what Updike did. There's a way, there's a reason why I like Updike. And I like him because of the democracy. Hmm. Commonality. Yeah, these are people who vote. There, there is a humility yeah. uh, to to Updike. Everybody in Joyce's, everybody in Ulysses votes. Yeah, everybody goes to the ballot box. They You're don't right. actively do it as You're well right. stated, yeah. but they're all voters, yeah. and that is the basis of our democracy. And and Updike is all about people who vote. They go to town hall meetings, they yeah. go to local town meetings, and all the rest of it. And he's yeah. also his language is very accessible. Very accessible. You know, so accessible. in a way, he's very similar to Joyce, but in Absolutely. another way, very different. Absolutely, he's yeah. more formal than Joyce. But uh, and he he um, he doesn't try in any way to be obscure. He's less in that sense less quotes literary, but he's a highly literary writer who uses language to explain. Johnson, Dr. Johnson's definition, uh, I think it was Johnson's definition, or that might be the Oxford definition of the novel, is a lengthy piece of prose uh, explaining the human, discussing the human condition, and hmm. um, both Updike and Joyce. Completely conformed to that. Yeah. You mentioned magic, right? That was one of Nabokov's uh, 
points. Yeah. I just interviewed a magician recently, and he said Not magic. Magicians. Oh, do you? Well, let me Not introduce magicians. you to him. He was profiled in The New Yorker. Uh, I'm sure you read his, his name is Jamie Ian Swiss. Yeah. He's one of the world's best close-up uh, magicians, cards, coins, you know, all that stuff. And um, just two weeks ago, I interviewed him. And uh, he said, in his, from his perspective, he said, magic is the most honest art form because I tell you I'm going to lie to you and then I lie to you. You know, it, it, I, everyone else just lies to you, right? But I, and it, I was thinking a novelist does that. I'm going to tell you a story, right? I'm making this up. I'm telling yeah. you a story. But yeah. you're going to be amazed by it. You're going to learn. You're going to, you know, some, something's transmitted to yeah. you that I couldn't transmit directly without lying to you, without this conceit. What, so, did you grow up reading American literature? I mean, I you, you grew I, up I in grew Ireland, up right? Reading comics. Where, where were you in Ireland? I grew up in a, in a county in the co- a county called Tipperary. Oh, famous heard county. Of it. Uh, it's an a lot of Ryan's there, aren't there? A lot of Ryan's. You yeah. can't throw a stone without hitting a Ryan down. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I have a Ryan character, a Ryan family, in this new novel. Um, it's about uh, we're about forty miles from the nearest coastline, right. rich farming country. You know, lazy farms, comfortable farms. I've been there. Great yeah. horses, yeah. you know, great race horses. And my my father was an essayist and a writer, but he was also a teacher. Uh-huh. Uh, interesting man in many ways. Uh, my mother was also a teacher. They ran the local village school like a fiefdom. It was their parish, and they, my mother helped deliver the babies and lay out the dead. My father filled in all the forms and applied for grants for people. He was an interesting man. His father was... Um, his father worked on the railway, on the Great Southern and Western Railway, in a little place called Dundrum, very near us at home, about eight miles from where I grew up. And his father got ill in his 40s. His father was, by all accounts, an exceptionally nice man. He was also a balladeer. He wrote ballads, and mm. I have some of the ballads. Mm. An exceptionally nice man. And in his 40s, he fell, 40s, 50s, he fell ill with cancer. And they couldn't get the local doctor to attend him because the local doctor was under the thumb of the local Protestant landlord. So he died of cancer, and my father was very scarred by it, but my father then was 12, 13 years old, and there were seven siblings behind him. So he set to work. He got a job as a kind of paid prefect in the local school where he was the star pupil. And then he went to work at nighttime in a local bar or grocery, and then during the daytime and at weekends when he wasn't in school, he worked for farmers. So he ran three incomes, to supplement his mother's appallingly small pension. And he did not look after himself until he placed all his siblings in jobs, professions, whatever. He got some apprenticed. My uncle rose to be the, the, the principal executive in the country dealing with all rail freight. So the railway still runs through the family. My other grandfather was a train driver, my mother's father. And, and her mother was an extremely wealthy woman, self-made wealth. But um, Her so mother? Her mother. Her mother was a... Was a her mother was an extraordinarily interesting woman. Who we we have there were photographs in my mother's family of my mother and her three siblings and my grandmother on Cunard cruises in 1912, sitting on the bench out in the open deck with the fur throws across their knees. You know, that was from a little city like Limerick in Ireland. And she was Catholic as well. Catholic, so devout Catholic, and devout Catholic. Hard to be a rich Catholic in those she days. She became I would a very imagine. rich Catholic yeah. because she was a moneylender. And she became a Catholic. Uh-huh. She became a moneylender because she was a Catholic. Because <sighs> she understood that every family in the city had a child going for commun- first communion or confirmation, and they needed an outfit or a wedding outfit. So she cut deals with the local department stores, 
that she would give them a deposit and they would give her a discount and the people who bought the outfits down there paid her back at a shilling a week. <laughs> so she was sort of pushed into f- fulfilling... She was a Shylock. She was a money. Well, a Jew, yeah. Uh, yeah. What happened Absolutely. with the Jews, right? They were exactly, pushed exactly into that. that position. And yeah. she took the model. She, she modeled it on a, very, on a very close friend of hers, a Jewish woman in Limerick who was wow. doing the same thing for the Jewish wow. families. And my grandmother did this and made a, a, a huge amount of money. So we lived in this tiny village where my parents were the were the teachers, and my father was also on the selection committee for the county of all the school library books. So two every month, two crates of books would arrive in the school with a selection of books to suit all tastes in the parish. Mm-hmm. And my parents, hell bent on making people literate, hell bent on it, would make sure that everybody, everybody got a crack at these library boxes. But by the time the the, the boxes went back a month later I had read every single book (laughs) in each box there was nothing salacious there was a lot of young American literature Hmm. for um, for for kids Um, and there was you know literature of all kinds but I read books about drainage about crop irrigation, about rotation, <laughs> about needlepoint, <laughs> needlework, crochet. I read everything, cookery books. Everything was there. I just devoured the whole thing. I was at the end of a large family, and it feels almost as if I grew up as an only child because all the others had their groups up ahead of me. And here we had this. And then something else came into our lives that was immensely moving and, and gave me a taste for America like nothing else did. We were... Because Ireland was such a poor nation, we were part of the European martial aid. And the American Red Cross assembled every year these huge, huge consignments of new clothes, shoes, sweaters, candy, books, pencils, jotters, school materials. And our school was in the drop zone. We, we, they went all over the country, but we, every so often, about every six months, some of these huge Red Cross boxes would arrive at our school for the contents to be distributed among the children of the parish. Now, we had children, we had families who couldn't come to school where all the children couldn't come to school every day because there weren't enough clothes to go around. So they would rotate. So these red cross boxes, these huge, huge crates, I mean, they were taller than me when I was a boy of about seven or eight. These huge crates would come in and we'd unpack these and they had this wonderful perfume smell. And there was candy of all kinds. There were Hershey bars. I mean, I knew about Hershey bars long before I came to live in the United States. And this massive, massive amount of goodies. And they were distributed then around the parish. Kids got sweaters, pants, sneakers, everything. So this largesse was in my mind from Mm. a very, very young age. And I remember thinking, what kind of country does this? And, of course, then, Jesse James had been born in the next county, um, uh-huh. uh, uh, what's his name um, Legs Diamond came from up the middle of the country near Athlone there were all kinds of connections to America Maureen O'Hara's husband landed a flying boat in Shannon for the first time there was all this going on so there was a huge American part of the culture cowboys and Indians I had on my walls charts of all the American Indian nations the nations and the tribes I knew the Choctaws, I knew the Comanches, I knew the Creeks, I knew the ones that were numerous, the ones that weren't numerous, the Cherokees, <laughs> every single thing. This is how I grew up, as well as all the Irish mythological heroes as well. Yeah. So it was an enormously rich upbringing in a small country village where there's not a lot to do in the winter. Did you get a chance to read Mark Twain? I had read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn by the time I was 10. 
<laughs> what do you I think? Tried, Did they work I for tried, you? Oh, God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. I tried to get people to paint a fence like Tom Sawyer painted the fence. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. doesn't work in Ireland. They were up to it. <laughs> They're a little clever. <laughs> they were good, whatever, you know. They couldn't, they had no interest in the job. But the, the whole idea, what did escape me, um, what I didn't get the nuances of, were the relationship between Huckleberry's Finn and the black slave. I didn't get that. This is, did, yeah. didn't understand about this. I was probably 18 years old before I saw a black face. Yeah. And that was in Dublin, and he was a Nigerian student. I remember, in, I remember introducing my own boys when they were small to somebody I knew in Dublin who was a, an African-American doctor living in Dublin, an American. And when, they, when my, one of my boys shook hands with him, I saw him looking at his hand like this to see how the black rubbed off. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how removed yeah. we were yeah. from that issue. Where we did have a lot of knowledge, and a huge amount of knowledge, was we were steeped in Irish-American lore. Right. We knew who Gene Tunney was. We knew who Jack Dempsey was, the big boxers. We knew about the coffin ships, about the famine emigrants, the migrations into New York, the migrations into Chicago. I do not know anybody in Ireland who lives in Ireland to this day. I, and I conducted this extensively, this inquiry. I do not know anybody who does not have a relative living in North America. And I would say to people, do you have any relatives in North America? And say, no, no, my, my, my mother has a cousin in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I think that counts. That's what they would say. Yeah. <laughs> that counts. Yeah. yeah, I don't, but my mother does. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that was the, so the, the, the cultural part of America of which we were aware was primarily Irish-American. Yeah. We knew nothing of the African-Americans. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. First time I read uh, Huckleberry Finn, I had I didn't know any black people right. either. I, I know. you know yeah. lived in Western Pennsylvania. I didn't meet a Jewish person until I came to New York. You know, I mean that's yeah. We were aware of the Manada, but not in the same way. I mean, my mother had Jewish friends, right? But that's all, you know. Yeah, and certainly your mother's mother did. Oh, she absolutely did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. She did. Yes, yes, thank somebody. Yeah. yeah. What about Melville? I mean, I could talk with you about oh, books Melville. all day. Oh my God, I adore Melville. Are you a Melville? I thought absolutely you might be. Absolutely adore yeah. Melville. I'm one of the few people you'll ever know who doesn't skip parts of Moby Dick. Yeah. You know, he's he's wonderful. I mean, the characters he created. And uh, some years ago, I was doing a book tour up around um, Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and I got taken to New Bedford. Ah, right. And there's the church out of Moby Dick. I mean, I nearly lost my life. And there's the house of the widow's walk. And this is where Queek Queek was standing outside the church. I mean, it was just... And, and then, of course, when I was a boy, John Houston filmed Moby Dick uh. in a town about 40 miles from us, south, the town of Yall, which is the seaside resort for Cork. And that's where the ships set out from. And there were Irish actors on board ship. It was I saw the, I saw the movie recently. Oh, Melville was massively important. And Moby Dick is massively... It's so important to me that I didn't even notice that Steven Spielberg had based Jaws on it. <laughs> really? Important. Oh, yeah. I didn't notice yeah. either. Oh, yeah. no, no. Well, if you think about it, Jaws is Moby Dick all over again. Really? Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to have to go yeah. watch but, Jaws uh, but again. But yeah. the richness of Melville's prose. I don't care. Modern publishers would not have Melville today because they would call all this stuff yeah. filler. Well, you know what else? They wouldn't have Lolita today. They would not. Forget, forget about it. How old was she, 14? They, they wouldn't have Ulysses today. No, they wouldn't have any of that no. stuff, no. But I, what I, I, I think that the, the big mistake with uh, Moby Dick is that 
people are intimidated by the fact that it's the great book. It's, you know... Yeah, uh, I think that's right. It's well, a like funny yeah, book. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's delightful. Yeah, I mean, Ulysses, I can understand just because yeah, yeah. technically it's much, it's you know, and there you have to really study. Yeah. Whereas, to, to me, Moby Dick is funny. It's and the salacious. between the men... Are- Do you remember they're all squeezing the lumps of sperm and Abs- they end up holding hands? Absolutely. He's just joking. And the figure of Ahab himself. <laughs> I mean... It stops just short of satire. And I wonder... <laughs> I don't know if it's short. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, maybe not. I wonder whether... And I don't know this, and this is, a, yeah. this is ignorance speaking. I wonder whether Melville was basing it on some political mm. figure the way an 18th century English writer would have done. Right. Who was president? Or a Soviet. Yeah. yeah. So, so, who was president at the time? Yeah, good question. When was this? 18... But, but 60s, that would be interesting 70s. to inquire whether whether yeah. or not Ahab is based on somebody in particular, yeah. or somebody in Melville's family. He live. We live in Kent, Connecticut, uh, most of most weeks, and um, he lived. Melville lived up the road in Pittsfield, mm. and it's it's a huge thrill, even just to be in his area. Yeah, you know, just everything about him appeals to me. There's a chapter in Moby Dick. I think it's called a cassock, a cassock. It's a very short chapter, maybe a page, page and a half. And it ju- it's just one of these snapshots. And the, the guys are on the deck. They've, they've got a whale, and they've, yeah. they, they're, they're gutting out. And he uses language that's intentionally kind of difficult to tell exactly yeah. what he's saying. But if you look into it, you realize what, what the, he's describing is they've cut off the whale's penis, yeah. and they've gutted or right. fleshed it out, yeah. and they've cut armholes. Yeah. And there's a guy, dan- he's got it on his head, ah, and he's dancing ah, yes, around with the penis that, no, on his no. head. And he says he, he looked like, I, I forget the word, he looked like a Cossack or something, or perhaps an archbishop prick <laughs> so, so when you say he stops just short of satire am i right in thinking that he actually had to fund some of the publication himself well, wasn't it serialized wasn't it like you know 10 yeah, pages like, a week like, like and some and and yeah. Like that, yeah yeah dickens used to change his story according to what he overheard at the local grocery oh really oh, yeah. <laughs> he's not going to kill little nell is he or something like that you know <laughs> And the, and the great, I mean, uh, Melville story, uh, what, what's it called? The, uh, the guy who keeps saying, I prefer not to? Yes. You know what I'm talking about? The, I know, exactly. Uh, 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 it's, it's, he um, just refuses to participate. Um, it's, it's, it's not the Scrivener. Bartleby the Scrivener. Bartleby. Yeah, Bartleby that's the Scrivener. Right. That's, that's it, exactly. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And Joseph Conrad, uh, another, yeah. Conrad Conrad is stunning. I knew his son slightly. Really? Conrad oh, is geez. stunning. If you read the first, and this is a puzzle, a lot of my friends know that I puzzled over this because I've said it to so many people. The first 20 pages of Lord Jim are written by Conrad, and purport to be written by Conrad as a third-party narrator, third-person narrator, in the most beautiful, creamy prose that you will ever read in your life. And then for some bizarre reason, he stops and he hands the story over to this old bore, Marlowe, who begins to tell the story in colloquial terms. And I've never understood that writerly or editorial decision. Why did he suddenly abandon it? Lord Jim or Heart of Darkness? Lord Jim. Ah, because... Oh, Marlowe's in Heart of Darkness. He tells us, yeah. He uses Marlowe about three or four times. Ah, okay. But uh, but in Lord Jim, remember, he describes the Patna going across the ocean. He describes the wake of the ship. He describes describes the event. He describes the men leaving the ship in the boat. 
and then suddenly Mara takes over because there's about to be a trial and Jim is on trial and all the rest of it. But up to then, it is the most perfect book. And suddenly, and I, I remember the first time I ever read it, sitting down to this, I was about 16, sitting down to this thinking, Christ, this is gorgeous, this is wonderful. And then suddenly, this old guy comes in, in a white suit, standing before a fire, the club, or somewhere like that, or sitting in a wicker chair, in some veranda somewhere, in the far-flung corners of the Empire. And he starts telling the story. And it's not nearly as engaging as Conrad's own voice was. Conrad was a... Here's the thing that stops me in my tracks. Conrad wrote beautiful English. It was his third language. Yeah. He started learning Polish English at 21, 22? Polish was first. French, French. Was second. Yeah. And then... And then English. And he wrote Heart of Darkness at 34, I believe. I think that's right. So he'd been, he started learning English because he joined the English Merchant Marine at 21, 22. That's absolutely right. Ten years later, he's writing one of the most beautiful books in the language. Amazing. Heart of Darkness is an extraordinary book. Yeah. And and his, his, his humanity, his forgiveness, it's just the way he forgives Jim over and over again. In the book, tries to understand him and what happened, and it's the simplest plot, you know. You know, he jumps that they all leave the ship, but the ship doesn't sink. The crew leaves the ship and leaves all the passengers aboard, but the ship doesn't sink. I mean, what about a moral dilemma there? Perfect. Yeah, fantastic. He was he was a very depressed, suicidal man. He was a depressed, suicidal man. John, his son, was an architect, and um, I got to know him because I was interviewing him about his father's books. I think there was a remake of The Secret Agent or something like that coming up, and we got him in. He was he an was architect for Kent County Council, one of the counties south of London. And he described to me how, as a little boy, he would be wakened up by his father, age five or six, and lifted out of his bed and carried downstairs and put sitting at the table where his father, a side table where his father had set up a chessboard. And this is about three o'clock in the morning, and he's played chess with his father. And then suddenly his father would get, his father had a pitcher of water into which he used to put out his constantly smoking cigarettes. And then suddenly his father would, without any warning whatsoever, get up and leave the chessboard and go back to his desk and continue writing, completely forgetting the boy was there. So the boy would sort of tiptoe out and go back to bed, see his father in the morning. father wouldn't even know they had been playing chess the night before. But he then told me a story. He was working with a very recalcitrant builder who had been contracted by the county council to do some public works. And he wasn't getting on with this man. And he'd, somebody had told him this man read books. And he came in one day to try and appease this contractor, and he handed him a paperback of Heart of Darkness. And the uh, contractor looked at it and says, No, I don't know that thing, is it? And it back to him. So as he's leaving the meeting, the contractor comes after him and says, um, You live out my way. He said, uh, uh, Could you drop into my home this evening? He said, In your way home. John Conrad thought, oh, my God, now what is this? What trouble am I in now? So he drove to the man's house and went in, and the guy met him at the door and says, um, step in here a moment, he said. Um, I, he says, I realize, he said, I, I didn't accept your book today. He said, I couldn't accept your book, he said. I would not read your father's books in paperback. That flabsy edition, he says, this is the way I read your father's books. So he showed him a shelf 
of all hardback first editions. Things got better from Absolutely. that point. Absolutely. Yeah. From that on, they had no problem. Oh, wow. That's a wonderful beautiful. story. Yeah, a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. But that's how Conrad touched people. Yeah. Conrad, he's a. I hate to be to, to be gender specific about things, but he's he appeals more to men than women, and not many writers do, apart from thriller, mystery, and adventure writers. But serious novelists don't appeal to men that often. Mm. And I have, I have a, 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 I get interesting responses to the books I write. I get as much from men as I do from women. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And what is it? Conrad's not afraid to discuss emotion. If you read, if you read the mm. normal novel for men, there's no emotion in it whatsoever. Mm. He's not afraid to discuss feelings. In the context of adventure. Con- absolutely. Yeah. And not only that, but he has this, does this wonderful thing, Chris. You understand that in his hands... Um, Emotion is a motivation. A man will do something to avoid a feeling to, or to achieve a feeling. And who's, who's doing that nowadays? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Listen, I've taken up over an hour of your time. Delighted. I, I could sit here <laughs> till the cows come home and then, and then some. Yeah, I really hope we can. Lovely. Thank you so I, much. I mean, I, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the things I wanted to talk to you That's about. probably just as well. <laughs> <laughs> that was a delight. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Listen, uh, people who want to read your, your books, where, where should they start? Where, where would you recommend people? The book people? for which I'm most known here uh, is a novel called Ireland, uh-huh. a big novel called Ireland. Uh, there, it was followed by a book called, by a non-fiction book called *Simple Courage*, about a, sh- about shipwreck. a shipwreck. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, talk about a Conrad story. Yeah, about a captain from New Jersey, thirty-eight years old, an amazing. He became for a time the most famous man in the world uh, because his he refused to leave the he ship. He refused to leave yeah. his sinking ship and yeah. almost got it to port. Sort of the opposite of a Lord Abs- Jim situation. Absolutely, the yeah. opposite. Of that. That's why I was drawn to it in many ways. Although I've known it since I was nine years old. And the story kind of pursued me all my life until I finally wrote it when I was 60 years old. But um, then there's a novel called Tipperary and a novel called Shannon, which a lot of people are drawn to, which is the story of an Irish chaplain, an, Irish, an American chaplain from Sharon, Connecticut, with Irish background, um, who, Irish grandfather, I think, who is very badly shell-shocked in World War I. And when he has begun to recover... Part of the cure is that he goes to Ireland and tries to find his family. And he walks up one side of the River Shannon and down the other. And what he doesn't know is there's a safety net underneath him uh, him, because people have been advised to look out for him. But it's the story of his own personal odyssey to his own recovery. And a, a huge number of men and chaplains of forces here, marine chaplains and people like that, have written to me about this book and about the PTSD in it, the, the whole traumatic stress thing. Um, what else? I Everything is on Amazon or somewhere. I wrote three novels, part of a quintet, which I haven't finished yet, about the Holocaust. But about the Holocaust as in our lives today. The, the protagonist is a, an English architect, a Tony English architect, a bachelor who doesn't know, who is so unconsciously anti-Semitic that he doesn't know until she has been brutally murdered, that his long-standing lover was Jewish. He has never taken the trouble to find out. That's how casually anti-Semitic he is. And if, he, if she were Jewish, he'd probably have dropped her. And then he uncovers a whole series of horrendous echoes of Nazism. And the research of that was fascinating. I remember one day, one last story, I remember standing in Berlin for three-quarters of a day. I broke for lunch on the site of Hitler's bunker, doing on-street interviews and asking people, can you tell me where Hitler's bunker is? 
And I think out of the 30 or 40 people that I stopped and interviewed, I think only about two said, oh, down there. Some said it never existed. Others said, oh, the Russians destroyed that. Oh, it wasn't here at all. Yeah, the, the, the level of, which is what I was trying to get at. Is the bunker the where he died? The bunker where he died. Yeah. Which they say the Russians. I, I still do not know to this day what the condition of that bunker is. Did the Russians fill it in, as has been said? Has it just been covered over? Does anybody go down there? I, st- I was not able to find out. That's fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, I, and I, I assume you approached German oh, authorities. I, I, and, I, and my, my advisor was a local Christian socialist counselor who was enormously helpful, and he didn't know. He didn't know. And his father was in the SS. Where can people listen to your podcast? What's it called? www.frankdelaney.com, D-E-L-A-N-E-Y, and it's called Rejoice. 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 That's a great Re, name. R-E dot dot. Or we call it Joyce. Yeah, yeah, about Joyce. Rejoice. Yeah. Thank you very much, Frank. Pleasure, Chris. Thank you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you ever know said it for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.